I'm excited for me. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, it's like, it's good to be me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amen to that. Hey, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you, God, for this church that you're building. I thank you for this community that you're forming. And Lord, I thank you for the promises that you've spoken to us as we've stepped out in faith to build uh, this local expression of your church. Lord, I thank you for the Capital C Church that meets all across the globe today uh, to worship and praise you, uh, to gather, to rest in you and who we are in light of who you are, God. And I pray that as we open up the word today, that, God, you continue to speak to us uh, about who we are, what you want to do in and through us, your purposes here on the earth, Lord, that we might fall more in love with you and your purposes, God, in the earth. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are starting a new sermon series today that I am so excited about. It is simply titled The Gospel of Luke. And uh, as I was really praying about what we would do here this semester, uh, I thought, what better way uh, for a new budding church plant than to start with the foundational truths of the gospel of who Jesus is. And we will do this. We'll take the gospel of Luke through, uh, through Easter. And then after Easter, we'll continue on with Luke's writing right through the book of Acts. So this is going to be a part two, one and two series here uh, that I'm really excited about because um, I think it's so important for us to remember um, who Jesus really is slash was and uh, what his church initially was all about because if we forget these foundational truths, we start to drift. There's this thing called missional drift that a lot of organizations get into, a lot of churches get into. And I, I love this analogy. Um, anybody ever worked construction before? Even like just part-time, helping out the dad? I know, I know, Ryan, we got one. Of course you have. Donna's done everything. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, when I was working construction, uh, oftentimes just as a laborer, you were just cutting wood, right? Just cutting wood. Um, but then the, the, the lead foreman would actually be the one marking out the lines and figuring out exactly uh, the, the, the plan and then putting it into uh, reality. Uh, but we'd just be at the saw cutting wood. Well, what you, what you do with, with wood is you, you take your tape measure, you measure twice, cut once, they say, and you, you make your notch, you make your little V, and then maybe with a, with a square, you put a little line right there, and then you take your saw and you cut it. And uh, that's great for the first one. So if, if my foreman said, hey, cut these boards down to eight feet, I could make that line and cut it down to eight feet. Well, there's kind of a lazy men's technique that you can do is where you take that board then that you just cut down to eight feet, you put it down onto this 12-foot board or this eight-foot board, whatever you're cutting from, and then you make a line based on that, that, that board that you had just cut, right? Well, then I could take that next board that I just cut and use that, put that on, do that again and do that again and do that again. What, what I might not realize is that every time I make that new mark and then I put my blade, I'm going about a sixteenth of an inch to the right and making that board just a little bit longer and just a little bit longer. And pretty soon my, my foreman's picking up from the pile of wood here and his two by fours and he, uh, he puts one up on this eight foot wall and he's got a nine foot stud. And he says, what happened here? And I said, well, I've just been cutting boards all day. And he said, well, these boards are not eight foot anymore. And what I didn't realize is that there was a drift away from the original measurement, which was supposed to be eight feet. 
And this is a great analogy for us to understand why it is so important that we immerse ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding the true essence of what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and what he intended for his church. Um, we can't measure ourselves based off of what this church is doing or what that church is doing or what, what the trends are of our day because we will start to drift and become something we weren't intended to be in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes. So practically what we're going to do is we're going to go through the Gospel of Luke section by section. I, I wish we could go verse by verse, and in a, in a life group context, we might have more time for that. Um, but we're just going to take it section by section, and I, I, I'm going to pull out um, a primary theme, teaching text, a story uh, that I feel like the Lord wants us to know about that section of the Gospel. Um, and then uh, we'll continue to, to make our way all the way through um, the book of Acts and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, so let's start with the Gospel of Luke. What is the Gospel of Luke and who wrote it? You can open up to the Gospel of Luke and um, we'll read from it in just a moment. I don't know about you, but um, uh, the older my parents get, the more interested I actually have become in their stories. Um, because I know that there will be a day when they're no longer with us and those stories will be lost forever. Um, there is nothing like an eyewitness account to the stories that they have lived. And so my parents have a story to tell that nobody else can tell because they were the ones who lived through those decades and those years. They were the only ones that knew my grandparents at younger years. I don't know those people, um, and my grandparents have passed on at this point. And so um, uh, recently, I don't remember if it was you, Brian, or somebody uh, got our parents into something called StoryWorth, which is this online um, uh, 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 s- tracking of stories by sending questions. So what it will do is send questions to my parents, and then they will fill out the answers to those questions. So it'll be like, um, what's a, a favorite childhood memory that you have during these years? Or uh, tell a time when you got in trouble, you know? And it'll just prompt them with these, these questions, and then they fill out these the answers, and then it's compiling those over time uh, for us to have a record of, just these great stories. And uh, I think it's just a really neat way of chronicling the stories of our, of our, of our elders and the, the generations that will pass before us. So the Gospel of Luke is similar to this um, because the Gospel of Luke is the, uh, the, the stories being told of the first generation of individuals that actually walked with Jesus um, that witnessed his life, death, and resurrection, and then Luke gets the opportunity to actually interview them and meet them. It, it doesn't seem like Luke himself ever met Jesus, but he was certainly living within that same time frame. He was probably born before Jesus passed away, um, and then he's getting this unique opportunity to actually interview first-hand accounts and eyewitnesses. Um, Luke is assumed to be a non-Jewish or Jewish convert. So he's not, um, uh, he's not probably Jewish by, by blood. He might have been a Hellenistic Jew and so had converted to Judaism. Um, he seems to be writing for both Jews and Gentiles alike, which is really, uh, which is really neat. We see that in his writings. Um, and uh, Luke probably knew multiple eyewitness, uh, eyewitnesses, um, but uh, equally important, he also traveled with uh, Paul himself, Paul the Apostle, and uh, was, was privy to seeing Paul's uh, ministry, which we will see a lot in the book of Acts. 
According to the Bible, Luke was a physician. Um, uh, the Greek word is actually somebody who heals others. So um, we assume that there's a physical, uh, a, 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 a doctor, a physician doctor, um, uh, not a healing minister per se. Um, and we can see that through his writings, he's very well educated, uh, which would be consistent with that as well. Um, so chapter one, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we read this verses one through three. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the Paul, or excuse me, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus. Theophilus uh, translates into "loved by God," and so uh, this could have been a real person, but most likely it's also a general, broad audience for those loved by God. Um, it could be one and the same. Um, and some of the reasons that um, I'm sure Luke made it into the canon, but we can see through 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 scholarship and uh, textual criticism, is that the history and the historical accuracy of Luke's gospel is uh, is incredible. He had numerous references to commonplace uh, historical figures of the time, political happenings of the time, not just what was going on uh, with the the, the early uh, church or with Jesus and his disciples. Um, he was very well educated and researched. The genealogy in Luke uh, is very thorough. Um, it's chronically precise. One of the things about Luke's gospel is that he's very intent in making sure that the stories are told in a sequential manner of, of his, his ministry in Judea and then in Jerusalem. Um, and so it's very chronically accurate. Um, and it, it lines up with the other accounts of Jesus's life. There's numerous overlaps. So we have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, um, meaning they uh, have a lot of overlap. Uh, there's probably a common source, which they think is probably Mark, uh, from which they drew from, and then John is a little bit unique in his gospel. And so, um, but what we find in Luke is that the stories told, the character, the person of Jesus, the words of Jesus are very consistent with the other accounts of Jesus and his life. So a very um, credible and accurate and um, valid reference for us. If somebody wanted to learn more about who Jesus is, they could bank that this is a great source for them. Um, the, the original text that they have found from whether it's the Dead Sea Scrolls and original manuscripts line up very consistently with the texts that we have today. There's very little variation um, and I mean very, very, very little variation. Not major themes are changed, not major words are changed. It's usually punctuation uh, that, that has changed over time through scribe translations. And so um, very accurate, very reliable, and so we should um, feel comfortable uh, really diving into this, especially if uh, you have any new believers or people that don't know a lot about Jesus. This is a great place to start right here with the Gospels, better than any in terms of who is Jesus and what was he like. So last year, it's funny to say that, last year we ended the year with the birth of Jesus and the narrative that came uh, out of out of the beginning of Luke. And we're going to pick up right where we left off um, 
We read from Luke 2 last uh, time we gathered, specifically about the birth of Jesus and Mary um, and the Magnificat. Um, And you can go back and listen to that message if you haven't yet. Um, But today we're going to cover just Jesus' early life and the few recorded events that surrounded these early years. Uh, Our teaching text today will come from Luke 2, 21 through 38. So we're going to read this out loud as a community. Um, Luke 2, 21 through 38. Um, Who'd be willing to read this for us? So we, we just have one person read this today. Luke 2, 21 through 38. Charlie. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph, and Mary, by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will peace your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Thanks so much. I saw a really uh, tragic movie recently. <laughs> it's called A Man Called Otto. Anybody see this? Tom Hanks? Uh, Katie couldn't even finish it. Uh, the movie begins in a really dark and morbid way. So Otto had lost his wife just six months prior to the beginning of the movie and now was being forced into early retirement from a job um, that he didn't want to be done with. Um, and at that point, his wife has passed away. He was forced into retirement. Um, he had very little reason to live. Um, he had great grief prior to this. We find out that his um, they were pregnant and they got into a car accident. They lost the baby and his wife became paralyzed. So like tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. And so with no life left within him, he goes to the hardware store and he buys things needed to take his own life. And throughout the film, the first half, he makes four different attempts to take his own life. Uh, each one of them were inconveniently or conveniently interrupted. 
most people turn off the movie at that point because they're just like, okay, this is so morbid. Um, thankfully, it has a very redemptive, more redemptive ending and Otto doesn't end up taking his own life. But I think that this movie clearly depicts this truth that there's nothing more tragic than someone living without a sense of purpose or without a sense of hope. When people lose a sense of purpose and lose a sense of hope, their whole life meaning is gone. And uh, I've, I've encountered these people in pastoral ministry over the years. Uh, I've counseled these people. I've prayed with these people. I've sat with these people um, who, who really don't know why they are living. And it doesn't just happen to old people, but oftentimes the older somebody gets, as their friends and family have passed away, as their primary contributions in life have ceased, uh, they find themselves wrestling with what is my purpose in this world. In Luke's gospel, however, we read about two individuals, also very old in age, and yet they could not be more different than this character named Otto. Simeon and Anna. Simeon uh, was a man, verse 25, it says he was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. Can you imagine? Like, could you imagine even getting that now for Jesus' second coming? Like, somebody come to you and be like, you get to see Jesus come back. Like, that would be so exciting. It'd be really exciting until you're like 90 and then you're like, okay, Lord, <laughs> when's this going to happen? <laughs> it's just going to happen. Did I hear you right? Uh, so he has this promise from the Lord that he's not going to die until he sees Jesus. I love that the Bible um, doesn't answer every question. W- one of the questions I would have is like, how did he hear this? Did he hear it from an angel? Did he hear an audible voice? Did he hear it in quiet time one day? Like, did he hear it in the still small whisper like Elijah? Like, how did he hear it? We don't know. And so uh, we can't just assume that every time God speaks, it's audible. Uh, God speaks in a variety of ways. He speaks to us through scripture, through community, through prophecy, and through the still small voice, through reason, revelation. And so Simeon uh, is old in age, and he came in the spirit, verse 27, into the temple when the parents brought the child Jesus in. So they come in with Jesus. Uh, Jesus would have been about uh, at 33 days, according to Old Testament law, after a woman gives birth to a boy, it's different for boys and girls, uh, there would be a waiting period of time um, for purification. So Mary would have had to wait 33 days, and then after 33 days, she's supposed to go present herself in the temple. And then according to Jewish tradition, uh, every firstborn male would be presented and consecrated, given back to the Lord. And this is obviously um, hearkening back to the Passover when God spared uh, the firstborn children um, preserving the people of Israel. Uh, And so uh, the people of Israel continue to do this uh, and continue to do this even today. I had a a Messianic Jewish, they were Jewish, but they were Messianic uh, family friend out in Montana. And my friend Aaron, I I promise you, there's something within Jewish families where firstborn sons, they hung the moon. You know what I mean? Like they are the family's favorites. They are like, it's amazing. And it was so, I had heard that before and I experienced that with my friend Aaron and it was so fun. His mother just adored him. Like, oh, thankfully he didn't have any brothers. So there wasn't like, he had a sister, but I mean, that'd be a hard thing to be like the second or third born of of brothers. But Anyway, so Jesus gets presented in the temple, and Simeon at this very time comes into the temple, um, and it says this. 
He came in the spirit into the temple. Uh, in verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So uh, Simeon realizes this is the Messiah. This is the, the Christ child. This is the baby. This is the one that I was promised to Israel, but then also promised for me in my life that I would see. And now he's saying, now you can let me depart in peace because I've seen the fulfillment of this promise. And of course, there we see in verse 32, Luke's reference to both Gentiles and the people of Israel. This is an important theme that we'll see throughout the gospel of Luke, that the good news of the gospel is for all peoples. It's where we've um, borrowed our name from as a church. Secondly, we have Anna, uh, who is a prophetess. Verse 36 says, a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Uh, And then verse 37 gets translated differently. Some of your Bibles might say that she was a widow for 84 years after that. And some of of your translations will say she was um, uh, living as a widow until 84, and she was 84 then. I think the more appropriate translation is actually that she lived um, as a widow for 84 years. So if you do the math, uh, marrying age at that time would have been around um, uh, a 13, give or take, and then she was married for seven years. Uh, so that would have put her at 20, plus 84 would make her about 104 uh, years old when we encounter her in the temple. And it says this, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So after the death of her husband, uh, instead of just going into purposelessness and exile, uh, she devotes herself to a life of prayer and intercession. Uh, And it was said of her that she was a prophetess. um, And she gave herself to this work in the temple night and day. And so coming up to the temple at that very hour, verse 38... Uh, This is the hour that Simeon was holding Jesus and proclaiming him as Savior. She began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So two figures, Simeon and Anna, both of them old, both of them with a very distinct, clear purpose in life. So what was so special about them? They were people who lived their whole lives with a purpose according to a promise. This promise was the coming of the Messiah. I believe that God is calling us as a church, all people's church, to be a people who live with prophetic promise. I believe he's calling us to be a people who live with prophetic promise. Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago. And every generation since Jesus first came has been wondering two things. Would Jesus return in their lifetime? And how should we live with this uncertainty? How ought we live not knowing how long Jesus would tarry? So often we as Christians don't know how to live in light of Jesus' tarrying. I've come up with five different types of Gospels that we tend to drift towards, and all of them contain a certain deal of truth, uh, but I'll share them with you. The first one is this. This is how some people live. They live with the the end is near Gospel. And many people give their lives to praying and fasting for his return, 
like hastening his return. Like I'm going to pray. I'm going to I'm going to pray and fast and pray for Jesus to come back in my lifetime. And again, I'm going to dog on some of these, but all of these have scriptural truth and precedent for them. Number two is some people live with a hell in a handbasket, hope in a handmade furniture gospel. Okay, it's very wordy. It's a these are the ones who, who cloister themselves in, in private Christian communities away from society because the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and so they make handmade furniture instead, <laughs> thinking like, hey, we're going to do our Christian thing in safety because the rest of the world's going to burn. Okay? Number three, some people live with the get-out-of-hell-free card gospel. Uh, these are the ones who stand on the street corner preaching and proclaiming hellfire and brimstone and the impending judgment of God's wrath. And so they, they major on the hell piece and say, hey, don't go to hell. Get your get out of hell free card. And that's what their gospel is, is get out of hell free card. Uh, number four, some people major on the heaven piece and downplay anything about the purposes on this earth other than getting into heaven. And this is called the ticket to heaven gospel. Um, where we, we assume that the only purpose in this life is just getting into heaven, like getting into that next eternal life place. And number five is the prosperity gospel. Some Christians downplay all the returning stuff, all the heaven and hell stuff and the afterlife stuff, and they say it's all about here and now, and we're going to major on our quality of life, health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. Do you see these five at play in, 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 the, in the church? Very different types of gospels, different types of things that people major on in terms of how should we live in light of Jesus' tearing. And there are actual, there are elements of each of these gospels that contain some elements of truth in them. Uh, and that's what creates this ambiguity and the confusion for the Christian walk. Like, how should we live in light of Jesus' tearing? So when Jesus comes on the scene in Luke 2, uh, we see this here. Uh, Jesus fulfilled and was the fulfillment of God's promises. Um, We see that Jesus uh, and God himself has both great big promises corporately for the world at large, like saving the world, redeeming the world, restoring the world, eternal life. But he also makes very specific promises to people like we see with Simeon. So four points here, just to, if you're the note-taking type. One is that God makes promises. We see this in Scripture. He makes promises. Number two, God doesn't break promises. He's a father who keeps his promises. He's a man of his word. Number one, God makes promises. Number two, God doesn't break promises. Number three, God has promises for the world. These are the prophetic truths, the, the, the truths of what is going to take place on a global scale. And then number four, God has promises for his people, you and me. God makes promises. He doesn't break promises. He has promises for the world and he has promises for people, you and me. And ultimately, I believe that we are to be people who live with a sense of prophetic promise. I want to tell another story about a woman, a real-life woman, not a movie this time, although it could be a movie, named Julia Ward Howe. 
Julia Ward Howe uh, was alive in the 1800s, and uh, she was an abolitionist uh, seeking for the eradication of slavery in America. And at the outbreak of the Civil War, Julia Ward Howe pens uh, the lyrics in one sitting uh, to the song, The Battle Hymn of the Republic. And you might know the song, you'll recognize it as I share these lyrics. She said, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. You see, Julia Ward Howe uh, is taking some of these lyrics straight from Scripture. Uh, it's reminiscent of Psalm 27, um, when it says, I am convinced of this, surely I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. And she says, similar to Simeon, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And through this prophetic promise that God is on the move, that God is going to accomplish his purposes, she partners with that prophetic sense and she says, I am going to believe that and declare that with my life. And wouldn't you know, she got to see the end of the Civil War, the abolition of slavery in her lifetime. Would we be so lucky to see God's promises fulfilled in and around us and through us? I need to ask you guys, what do you see for your life? What do you see for yourself in the day and age in which you live? What do you see coming? Do you see Jesus? Do you see Jesus coming into the world in which you live? Are you filled with hope? Or do you have futility and fatalism instead? Are you sure of God's sovereignty, his goodness, and, and the truth that God will complete his purposes in and through his people? Or are you filled with cynicism? Are you full of faith in declaring God's promises? Or are you indifferent? What do you see coming for yourself, for your life, and the world in which you live? David was a man with great reason to be cynical. I mean, you think about the, the, the reasons he could have been a cynic. I mean, he was raised in a family in which he wasn't even considered worthy to come. When, when the prophet arrives, his dad lines up all the sons, but David, right? Like, his, his dad had total favoritism, and he was on the opposite end. And then he goes to battle, he's a hero, and then his very own king is so jealous of him that he tries to kill him, right? Like, and then he's on the hunt and on the run from, from this king for years, and then David's own son even at some point was trying to abdicate the throne and kill him, okay? So like, David had lots of reason to be cynical and to not believe in the goodness of God and God's purposes on the earth. But in Psalm 27, 13 through 14, he, he writes these words. Psalm 27, I am certain of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, he says. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Church, are you certain of this? That you will see the goodness of God in your lifetime? Like, are you certain of that? Or are you resigned that you're just going to grin and bear it, get through it, 
and pray that one day God comes and makes it all right in the future and pray that you don't get swept up in the meantime. Are you certain of this, that you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living? Are you waiting expectantly for this like Simeon and like Anna? Uh, Pastor Bill Johnson says this, and I, I couldn't agree more. He says, any area of my life for which I have no hope is under the influence of a lie. Like if there's an area of your life where you just have no hope, you're just like, it's hopeless. It's under the influence of a lie. We know that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he does this through trying to plant lies in your heart in which he tries to convince you that there is no hope, there is no salvation, there is no God, there is no Jesus, there is no king on the throne, there is no sovereignty of God. God is not powerful, he's powerless to help you in these places. Any area of your life for which you have no hope is under the influence of a lie. Satan wants to destroy your faith. God is calling us to be a people who live with prophetic promise. I'm going to share just a few theological terms. Some of you will appreciate these uh, for us as we continue to pursue the search of knowing what is God like and what are his purposes on this earth. Uh, We need to have a biblical understanding and a proper understanding of eschatology, which is just the study of the end times, of the end things, of where is all of this going? Where is all of this headed? This life, this death, this earth, the sorrows, the challenges, the woes, the ups and downs. Where is this all going? We need to have a proper understanding of biblical eschatology, and we need to take a look at that, because that is going to inform our missiology, which is the, what is our mission? How are we supposed to live? Eschatology fuels our missiology. When we know where all of this is headed, then we know how to live within light of that. My, my summary for you today, if you want to know, just very simply, if I could put it into one sentence, of where is all of this headed, it would be this. King Jesus is on his throne, and his kingdom is advancing. King Jesus is on his throne, and his kingdom is advancing. We need to be certain of that. We're not on the losing side. We're on the winning side. If we are with Christ, in Christ, we are continuing to advance from glory to glory, that, that this life is not just tragic, it doesn't have just a tragic end, that it's going to continue to see its prophetic fulfillment all the way until kingdom come, when we see Jesus face to face, when God renews the heavens and the earth, and we see him face to face, and we get to live with him for eternity. King Jesus is on the throne and his kingdom is advancing. This is the prophetic promise you will want to get right, first and foremost. We need to understand what prophecy is, especially in light of today's teaching text. Uh, Revelation 19.10 says, uh, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So when you think about this living with a prophetic promise, the testimony of Jesus is, is at the core, at the very heart of, of what prophecy is all about. It's proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is. Because Jesus has overcome sin, he has overcome death, and he is on the throne and he's advancing his kingdom. That is the spirit of prophecy. One commentary uh, from the pulpit commentary says this, To prophesy is to understand and proclaim the truth concerning God, especially in the face of prevalent ignorance or opposition. And so we saw this from Old Testament prophets to New Testament prophets alike. Prophecy is to understand and proclaim the truth concerning God, especially in the face of prevalent ignorance or opposition. Church, the world is so ignorant of the truths of Scripture, of heaven, hell, sin, judgment, righteousness, grace, forgiveness of sins, righteousness in Jesus, the resurrection of the body. And so the testimony of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what he will do, is the most important prophetic declaration that we can make. So whenever we, we preach the gospel, we are making prophetic declarations. Because it's not just about what has happened, it's about what will happen. That's a prophetic declaration. Like when you say, hey, Jesus has died for your sins so that you can spend eternity with him, that's a prophetic promise. That's a promise that somebody can hang their hat on, you know? Like, that, you can take that check and bring it to the bank. You can cash that check right now today because God makes promises and he is faithful to fulfill those promises. So we need to live by partnering with and and, and par, excuse me we need to live by partnering with these prophetic promises of God. So the four points again God makes promises, he doesn't break his promises. God has promises for the world and he has promises for you. They're not just about other people for another time and and for rulers and powers and principalities, they're for his people, for you. So where are you lacking a sense of King Jesus being on the throne in your life? Where are you lacking a sense that his kingdom is advancing in your world? For so many people, there, there are common themes in which the enemy just loves to grind us down and to destroy us of our faith, rid us of our faith. Sickness and death. When we encounter a sickness, death, it can seem so unfair. Uh, it, can, it doesn't make sense. When, when people struggle with chronic illness, it oftentimes just erodes at their faith. God's not really good. How could he let this happen? Poverty, financial struggles, financial hardship continue to erode at people's faith. The constant fear of, will I have enough? And where's the money going to come from? It wears at our faith. Loneliness and relationship struggles can be such a place of testing of faith where people question is Jesus really on the throne? Is his kingdom really advancing? Maybe it is out there, but I'm right here and I'm just suffering right now. Another area of, uh, uh, where, where the enemy loves to grind us down is through huge world concerns, geopolitical issues, political rivals, wars, famines, kind of the big issues of our day. Like, if we're not careful, we start to look at and read that news article and say, wow, Jesus is definitely not on the throne right now. He's, he's not advancing right now because all these people are getting slaughtered, you know? 
and we forget the truth of who Jesus is and what he's accomplishing, and we stop partnering with the promise, and we start partnering with fatalism and futility. Wow. Hmm. So how do we respond to this? First and foremost, we need to confess the places we lack faith. We just have to be honest with God and say, God, I really lack faith right now in this place of my life, in this area of the world. And then, especially in this new year, we need to consecrate our heart and mind today to be a person of faith who partners with the prophetic promises of God. How do you become a person who partners with the prophetic promises? The first and foremost is to become a student of God's word. You need to read God's word. You need to live in God's word. You need to eat God's word. So many people don't realize that there are so many promises that God makes throughout scripture. And and we just read them as though they're written for somebody else, but we don't realize that they were written for us. The Bible says that because we've been adopted, we've been engrafted into God's people, we are the heirs of God's promises. We are the heirs. We get to receive God's promises for ourselves, for our life. So a really neat tool that exists out there is it's called 365 Promises. There's um, a group of people that compiled 365 promises from Scripture, and every day of the year, there's a new promise. And so I sent out just... January's uh, to our WhatsApp community. If you're on our WhatsApp channel, you can pull these up and you can look through every single day. There's going to be a prophetic promise. God is something that he's promised his people um, and you can marinate on that and, and pray that in and partner with that. And it will build your faith. The more you, you, you proclaim the word of God, the more you proclaim his truths, it's going to build your faith. So instead of being people of futility and fatalism, we're just like, hey, it's just left up to fate, we can partner in faith with God and what he says is going to pass for us and for his people. So number one, become a student of God's word. Number two, immerse yourself in God's presence. I love what Anna did with her life. Day and night she spent in the temple. What is the temple? It is the place where God's presence dwelled. Since the Holy Spirit has come, he dwells among us, his people. And so wherever we gather, two or more, he is with us. And so immersing yourself in God's presence, those holy places of gathering. Um, It could be in this house church. It could be at a conference. It could be at a retreat center. It could be wherever we gather together, pressing in to God and his presence in worship and prayer and adoration. Immerse yourself in the presence of God. This is how you're going to become a person who lives with prophetic purpose. Number three, surround yourself with the people of God. I don't know about you, but I want to be surrounded by people who have bigger faith than me. Like, if you are the person consistently in the room who has the most faith in your life, it's going to be real hard to maintain that. Because people are going to want to siphon off of that. But we're meant to carry each other and faith have faith for one another. And so you need to surround yourself with the people of God, people that are living with prophetic purpose, a prophetic sense of, hey, God has made promises and I'm going to believe these things for us. Number four, start with God's big picture promises. So we need to, we need to know the purposes of God on the earth and what he's doing. Like, what is God doing through the church? What is, God, what is the kingdom? 
and how does it advance? We need to have a good biblical worldview and sense of God's prophetic promises for the big picture things. And then, and only then, can we move on to the idea of God revealing specific promises for our life. If we start there with just our life, it becomes very self-centered, very me-focused, right? It's, it's, it goes back to, hey, God, what, what, what's in it for me here? Versus, hey, God, what are you doing and how do I partner with that thing that you're doing? Do you see the difference? Like, this is not just a name it and claim it message here. Because the name it and claim it message is, is starting with me, getting a promise for my life, and then asking God to bless it and do it. The other way is saying, God, what are you doing? How can I stand here with you, partnering with you, partnering with this and being a part of this thing? It's two different approaches. So we can then ask God to reveal specific promises for our life. So where where do you start? I would say this. Start where your faith is faltering. Start where you're lacking hope. I'll just give you an example like your job. Okay, so I was working an aimless job that I did not like, and I was spending a lot of time looking for new jobs while I was in this job. And uh, as I was reading through the Bible, God spoke to me so clearly that he wanted me to stay. And he said, you got to put down the resume, get off of LinkedIn, get off of Craigslist, get off of all these other uh, places you're searching. He said, when the time is right, I'll come for you. And he spoke that to my heart. Like, and this is, again, I know that God is sovereign. And because I'm in the word of God, I know that he's for me. And I know that I actually don't have to force my own destiny, but I can actually believe God to bring it to pass. And so I, I, I said, okay, I put down the resume. I stopped searching. I, I just doubled down on where I was working. And wouldn't you know, three years later, a man walks into my office and offers me the exact job that, that was spoken to me in terms of it was going to be something that uh, utilized my gifts and brought me life. And this man said, hey, I'm looking for this person. I think this person is you. And I was like, Lord, I could not have made this happen if I wanted to. I didn't even know that this organization existed. Like, I didn't even know that this was possible to combine the passions of an outdoor enthusiast with a youth pastor with somebody who has sales experience. Like, but all of a sudden, that man was offering me a position that included all three of those things in one. And wouldn't you know it, God did it. I didn't do it. We need to partner with the promise then. Mm-hmm. This is the next step. So it's not enough just to hear a promise, but we do have to partner with it. So what does that look like? It's concentrated prayer, like praying these things in and then being obedient to what God invites us to do. Being obedient to the next thing. If we continue to, to pray and believe and say, God, I believe that you are a man of your word, that you keep your promises, that you've spoken these truths, that you want to do this. And then if we are obedient to how he calls us to live, I know that we'll see his promises come to pass. And then finally, and this is what we'll get into next week, we need to prepare ourselves and allow God to prepare us for the promise. We'll see what this looked like for Jesus and his life. 
Jesus wasn't born ready for it. He grew. The Bible is very clear about that, and we're going to get into that next week. What does it look like for us to prepare ourselves for the promise? And so here's what I want to do as we, we close out our time today. I want to take some time to wait on the Lord together. Uh, I really want to just sit uh, and take some time to allow God to, first and foremost, reveal places where we're faltering in our faith, where we're discouraged, where we're lacking hope. I want to take some time. You can confess that to the Lord. Um, and then I want us to wait on the Lord together and see what he might speak. He might speak something directly from Scripture. He might speak through that still, small voice. He might speak through our team. And, uh, and so what we're going to do is I'm going to put on some music here in a moment. Uh, and I'm going to carve out just about 10 minutes for us to really sit in this place. Uh, I'm going to have some of our uh, core team go into the living room, uh, some of the dining room. And then I'm going to stay right here. Uh, and I just want you guys to just wait on the Lord. And if you have a hard time hearing God's voice and you're just like, I don't know what that looks like. Um, or if you're lacking faith. Like, come pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. And if you're lacking faith, you can borrow some of ours today. Like, we have faith that God wants to do great things in and through his people. And you are those people. Like, I want you to know, to walk away today with a sense of, hey, God is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom is advancing. And his kingdom is going to advance in my life. That I am not left up to futility and fatalism. God's purposes will be accomplished in and around me as we continue to partner with him and his purposes on the earth. So, Holy Spirit, I just invite you to, to speak in this time. I pray that you'd reveal to our hearts the places where we lack faith. I pray that you'd reveal to our hearts the things that you're wanting us to believe for, the things you're wanting us to have faith for. God, you are good. Jesus, you are on the throne. And your kingdom is advancing pray that you'd expose the lies in our heart, Lord, where we lack faith, where we lack hope. God, I pray that you'd speak through your community, through your Holy Spirit, Lord. We want to be people who live with prophetic promise. We thank you, Jesus, and we just open up the space and time to you now. Amen.